0: Out with the, your canoe, and you start with paddling. You're sitting. The sun is
1: shining. You have the nature,
2: um, the peace and quiet, and all the things you can do. Well, you get to roast marshmallows and hot dogs and swim.
0: I'm gonna
3: go, baby before he's my man. Yeah, I'm gonna dog baby before he's my man
4: the world becomes simpler out there
2: so this is going to be a great story if we live through it
0: (laughs) (laughs) and i hope i get to see you out there
5: this is the boundary waters podcast
4: hi i'm lindsay gow
2: and i'm bill hansen
4: we are two of the many canoe country guides who will be hosting the WTIP Boundary Waters podcast.
2: And we look forward to having you join us on this adventure.
4: My name is Lindsay Gao. I grew up in Minneapolis and first went into the Boundary Waters when I was 15 years old. Uh, thank you to my dad for that experience. And then I didn't go in for a really long time and discovered it again Uh, many many years later after I was 15 years old and fell in love with it all over again and it became a place of healing for me really and I eventually decided to move to Grand Marais Minnesota here where we are right now and it just became an integral part of my life and I and I've been here in uh, in for about over eight years now. Actually, mm-hmm. you know, I went into the Boundary Waters at first in warmer months, and then uh, eventually got the courage to try winter camping as well in the Boundary Waters, which has also become a favorite thing of mine. It's a whole different, unique experience than going in 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 warmer months, and something I look forward to every winter. And I've also done some guiding in the Boundary Waters as well so i just feel like i have many different experiences and i continue to go in every year with my dad we have an annual trip and it has transformed my relationship with him he's uh you know he's my rock and one of my best friends and i will be forever grateful that he you know opened this door for me and introduced me to the Boundary Waters. That, that's something I will forever be grateful for. So thanks, Dad.
2: Hi, I'm Bill Hansen. I live in Grand Marais now, but I spent most of my life in Tofty at the end of the Sawbill Trail where my parents founded Sawbill Canoe Outfitters in 1957. And I worked there every year until I retired. I was there for 62 years. My parents say I didn't work that much the first few years, but I dispute that. I feel like I worked really hard. I've sorted all the pop bottles. That's how long ago it was. We had returnable pop bottles. They ran it for 30 years, then my wife Cindy and I bought it from them, and we ran it for approximately 30 years and then sold it to our daughter and son-in-law, Claire and Dan Shirley, who run it to this day very capably. So my whole life revolved around the Boundary Waters, and it's still my favorite thing to do. life is to go. I never got tired of it. (laughs) My favorite thing is to go out in the Boundary Waters. Having started so long ago uh, has given me I think kind of a unique perspective now. I'm kind of a survivor because I was there before it was the Boundary Waters. I was 11 years old when the Wilderness Act passed and was you know very cognizant of what was happening and I was there in 1978 when the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness Act passed and uh, was deeply involved in the politics around wilderness, testified before Congress three times on Boundary Waters issues and, and, uh, you know, just made my whole life live there. We were lucky enough to live right on the edge of the Boundary Waters at the end of the Sawbill Trail with no neighbors nearby. Yeah, it was a great, great life. And, and to this day, I still love all things Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness.
4: You want me to start, Bill? Yeah. When when
2: was your first, what's your memory of your first canoe trip?
4: I grew up in Minneapolis, so grew up in the city. And the only camping experience I really had growing up was every year my family went car camping for a few days uh, at St. Croix State Park. My dad had a lot of experience in the Boundary Waters with my brothers and Boy Scouts and things like that. And so he decided to take me and some of my siblings on a boundary waters trip when i was 15 years old and so it was my dad uh, my two brothers and each of them got to bring a friend and then me and i got to bring a friend as well and w- we went in on the western side of the boundary waters and it was an eight day trip which i look back now and realize that is a, That's very- a lot. That is a very long trip for a first trip, um, especially with not knowing what I was really getting into. But that that is my dad. He's an ambitious. He is an ambitious person. Uh, So I look back now and I'm not not surprised by that at all. (laughs) But so it's an eight day trip. Uh, We all went in. You know, I had minimal experience paddling a canoe and I had always been in the bow of the canoe, never the stern. So I remember getting into the canoe in the stern at, with my friend, and we just paddled in circles for a long time. And, uh, you know, it was just all these new experiences that I had to go through. But I don't remember in the moment thinking it was super fun all the time. It was so much work. I remember being really sore and tired and hungry a lot. And I think it rained for about five or six out of the eight days we were out there as well. So I also just remember being really wet. Um, you know, I like brought, I wore a lot of cotton. <laughs> I remember that. So I just remember being very damp um, and it being muddy and and all of these things. There were still a lot of fun moments. We did a lot of fishing you know we sat around and played cards we did a lot of hanging out in our tents reading books things like that i remember it being incredibly buggy i th- i think it was in august if i remember correctly so you know lots of bugs things like that um yeah i again i don't remember it being incredibly fun but i also remember enjoying lots of parts of it as well. I felt really grateful that I had a friend there, too, with me. It was one of my childhood best friends, Jessica. We're still really good friends to this day. And she, um, you know, she knew a lot more about the Boundary Waters than I did. She grew up going to Camp Wagon and things like that. So she had a lot more knowledge than me. And I actually just was texting her last night about it. You know, yeah. just reminiscing about it and and things like that, and we still tell stories about it to this to this very day. Um, her and my dad and I were together on Thanksgiving and reminiscing about it and things like that. But I think my biggest takeaway from this whole the whole experience too, I remember getting home to Minneapolis and missing it. and that, you know, even as a fifteen year old, I think that really surprised me I don't think I was realizing how much I was enjoying it until I got back to my life
2: that was my question is how did you feel afterward yeah because I think it's common for first experiences to be you know kind of on the miserable side a little bit but then at the end that's where you see the conversion when it's over then people look back and think wow that was really profound yeah is that your experience
4: well I as a 15 year old I don't think I thought the word profound but (laughs) but yes but I think I had those feelings of yes I remember getting back and being kind of sad I remember being Mm -hmm. sad and missing it and wanting to go back and I remember being kind of confused by those feelings because I was like it was kind of a miserable trip but why am I feeling this way and um and I think that just goes to show that it it somehow it altered my world in some way and and clearly had some effect on me as a as a fifteen year old to experience the boundary waters and and now i mean i 've reflected on this a lot over the years about this experience, and the more I go into the to the boundary waters, the more I kind of like will reflect back on my fifteen year old self and think of like oh, this is what I was experiencing or like this is what I must have been feeling or it helped. Now looking back, I'm, I'm able to make sense of a lot more things, what had happened for me at that time. But every time I leave the Boundary Waters, I get sad
6: mm-hmm.
4: for like a couple days. Yeah. I just get super sad and I just want to go back in. And the transition is so difficult for me once I leave. No matter how many days I'm in, even if it's a short trip or a long trip, I get I just feel this immense sadness when I leave and I realize now um, so so I'm neurodivergent I have ADHD and it wasn't actually until this year I realized this but like having ADHD is just like this constant internal sense of feeling overwhelmed it's it's having this overload of of sensory input that you're constantly taking in all the information around you, like on Super Blast all the time. And it's, it is, it is so much to take in all the time. And when I go into the boundary waters, that part of me like calms down. Everything calms down and, and it's like my, my brain quiets down and I just feel this sense of calmness that I don't really f- ever feel any anywhere else. And the world becomes simpler out there. And I think that's probably what I was feeling as a 15-year-old and didn't realize
5: it. Yeah.
2: And of course, we know now that being in wilderness does actually change your brain, mm-hmm. a, you know, physically. I mean, it, so that's uh, that's well-established. Science now, I think so. That's what you're experiencing.
0: Exactly,
4: that's really cool. Yeah, isn't it like three? It is it like three days or something?
0: Or
2: at least that's my experience. It takes about. It's the fourth day when I really feel the change, and uh, and then you feel it again. Of course, when you come out, you referred to that. Yeah, that that reentry is is tough. I'm actually famous for coming out late because (laughs) I can't. I can't drag myself out of the woods. I, I'm supposed to be back at noon. It was pretty typical to be back by like five or six. <laughs> and, the, and my family learned that and didn't worry after the first few times. But <laughs> I was going to ask about yeah, it's, that. <laughs> it's hard for me to leave.
4: Yeah. Yeah. It is hard to leave. And it, it like alters, it definitely alters your state of mind.
2: How about as time went on, your skills, did that help you when your skills improved and you started doing it on your own? Did that? Did that change you again?
4: Oh yeah, yeah. I definitely I stopped wearing cotton. <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs>
2: uh,
4: yeah, I feel like every experience I go into the Boundary Waters, I learn something new. It's it's not ne- it's there's never-ending knowledge. Yeah. Um, and the the more I go out there, of course, the more comfortable I get, and the more skills I acquire. But I also have learned it's never it's never a great idea to maybe get too comfortable, right? Like it's. <laughs> yeah it'll
2: it'll it'll slap you if you if you get too comfortable yeah you always kind (laughs) of have
4: to have that little piece of you that's that is still aware of you know the the dangers and and things like that and being safe but taking care
2: of yourself yeah self-sufficiency
4: yeah exactly
2: that's a good story i think a lot of people had that you know obviously for most people their first experience was either with their parents Or maybe with an organized group, but often with their parents. Yeah, it's a it's a a profound and important thing in family life, I think.
4: So I want to hear about your first experience or experiences, and uh, maybe even share a little bit more about your coming out late from the Boundary (laughs) Waters.
2: Well, my first canoe trip was in 1957. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) which makes me feel you know a little elderly, but I was four. My parents had bought or had started actually had founded that year Sawbill Canoe Outfitters. So they were they had been outfitters for about two weeks when we went on a canoe trip in June with the whole family and I have a picture of us on the dock departing and uh, the five of us my two brother my brother and sister and parents and our dachshund and uh, it rained yeah the whole time I think it was a five day trip and uh, I don't actually remember a lot of it you know I was four but I remember a few snippets. I remember having a lot of trouble getting a fire going the first night and eating basically raw food, (laughs) raw dehydrated food, and uh, getting wet in the tent that night because my parents really didn't know much about canoeing for starting an outfitter. My mom was from Kansas, my dad was from Maryland, and they, uh, they had, my dad had grown up in the children's camping business and his parents had a camp. Wilderness travel wasn't a big thing for them, so that trip was, you know, like yours, kind of Probably not a very pleasant experience in, in, in the, while it was happening, but, but I, did, I missed it too when I came out and couldn't wait to go in again. And then, of course, we went on many family canoe trips. And those I don't, you know, I remember bits and pieces of them. No, nothing really sticks in my mind until I was 12. And uh, when I was 12, I decided I wanted to go on a solo trip overnight. And amazingly, my parents agreed, and they let me go for two nights uh, from Sawbill over to Burnt Lake, which is two kind of long portages and I had an aluminum canoe Which I could barely carry I could barely get it up on my shoulders and And uh, it was murder to carry it, but I got it over there and I got an island site on on uh, Burnt that doesn't exist anymore and uh, Had a heck of a time setting up a big canvas tent You know, you can imagine and my mom insisted that I take a CB radio. We had a portable, you know handheld CB radio and it didn't work. The batteries died before I had a chance to try it. I was supposed to check in. So, of course, I didn't check in, and she was sure that I had died. Uh, It was a rough experience for her, I think, but I had a ball. But the (laughs) best part was I got set up, got my supper cooked. I was feeling really good about myself, and then a group of kids, high school kids from a church group, paddled over and came up on my site. And they said, hi, you know, I saw you came in today. And where are your parents? <laughs> and I was like, Oh, I'm out here by myself. And they were just like, What? You know, they were absolutely flabbergasted. I didn't think it was that that uh, that cool. You know, I just it was just routine for me. But uh, but I was kind of I was surprised and pleased that they thought it was so impressive. And it all went well. I got back. Everything was fine except for my mother complaining. She she maintains to her dying day that I that I chose not to check in. But I, I, was, I tried, and it just didn't work. But the most formative trip for me, I think, was when I was 15. I went with a friend, Hawk Jensen from Silver Bay, a um, good lifelong friend, and um, we ended up having quite a tradition of canoeing together. But that was our first trip. He was 16, I was 15. Uh, somewhere we'd come up with a pack of Winstons, and we were very excited about that, cigarettes. We were away from our parents. And then the day we left, we found a pint of Everclear which is, you know, foolproof liquor in the woods that somebody had stashed and we found it, so we brought that. So the first two days we went to one portage, went one lake, went to one one campsite, and for two days we smoked cigarettes and and tried to drink Everclear. It was lucky we didn't hurt ourselves. We finally poured it out. It was just so awful. <laughs> I remember he put a little bit in some in a cup of Kool Aid. You know, he was older, so he knew how to how to how to do alcohol and. He put like two drops in a cup of Kool-Aid and took a sip and he said, oh, that's terrible. And he threw it on the fire and it like flared up. (laughs) And and we kind of looked at each other like, oh, that's not good. So after the cigarettes and alcohol were gone, (laughs) it's kind of an embarrassing story up to that point. Then we kind of looked at each other and we said, what should we do? And he said, let's go on one heck of a canoe trip. And we packed up and we traveled for the next eight days hard. And we were, you know, young and fit, and we had a lightweight Grumman 15-foot canoe. We had pretty good gear, and we took a huge loop. I don't even remember exactly where we went, but we traveled every day and got suntanned and got hardened and got, you know, just had a ball with no, no alcohol and no tobacco, <laughs> which was great. <laughs> and uh, when we got back, we just looked at each other, and we were, we were hooked for life. And then I went, that was late in the summer, and I went back to school, of course, on Labor Day. And that time, we lived in Minneapolis and commuted. So I went back to school in Bloomington. And I remember sitting in class that first day, it was seventh grade, and looking around the class and thinking, you know, I can take care of myself. I can actually take care of myself. And I don't think any of these other kids can. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it was just that feeling of, like, being capable that just completely cemented me for life. And then Hawk and I ended up going on trips together every year until we were in our thirties, uh, just the two of us. And at some point in every trip, I thought, why do I go on canoe trips with this guy? Oh my God. And, and then by the end of the trip, we were, you know, as good of friends as you're ever going to find. So, and I'm sure he had the exact same, we had a great system. He was in charge in camp and I was in charge on the trail. And mm-hmm. so if they were, you know, we tried to make decisions by consensus, but if there were disagreement, I had the final word on the trail. He had the final word in camp and it worked great. And, uh, we were always going to start up the tradition again in our retirement, but, uh, health issues don't allow that for him, unfortunately. So, uh, we, we still see each other and, and he still camps in the campground, but. So those are my formative stories. And then of course I worked at the outfitter from the age of four on. So I had a lot of connection to the Boundary Waters through other people experiencing it, I basically, almost everyone who came off the trail at Sawbill, I would talk to them about their trip for sixty years. Yeah. Uh, so I, I got a lot of, a lot of trip debriefings from people, and you know, your your story sounds very familiar to me.
4: <laughs> so Bill, kind of some takeaways I'm hearing from this is going into the Boundary Waters for you, even as a young child, was so normal and it sounds like you did it quite frequently and it instilled this sense of confidence in you at at a very young age and a very formative age too as a teenager and also solidified this really unique friendship with this person in your life.
2: Absolutely both those things are true yeah and I just and it was just a ton of fun and what we discovered was that we like to really go on crazy trips so we went in the early spring we'd go and stay on one lake and fish a little bit right you know for opening a fishing and then go on and travel but for most of our trips we took long long you know arduous trips and then when we got into our teens we stopped using uh, developed portages and went to every little crazy lake that you're not supposed to go to in the boundary (laughs) waters I mean just insane bushwhacking and that's what we ended up really liking Uh, We had one trip where we had a, uh, it's a famous storm where in October, we had 16 inches of snow in one night and we were on, uh, on Bartow Creek, which is not a route. (laughs) So we're just out in the woods and we woke up and the tent was smashed down on us. And, and I remember uh, Hawk was fumbling around trying to find the flashlight because we're like, what's going on? The tent is like on top of us. And uh, he got the flashlight and he shown it out the door of the tent and he went, Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I thought, oh, this isn't good. (laughs) And so we had to portage. Not only were we bushwhacking the next day, but we were bushwhacking through really heavy, over-the-knee snow. It was brutal. We ate four days' worth of lunches that day. We would just stop. I remember we stopped, and we ate a block of cheese, just broke it in half and a Thuringer, (laughs) and cut that in half, and we just ate them. And that was supposed to be like four days worth of meat and cheese, for, but we were burning so many calories. And, uh, and he said at at lunch, he turned to me and he said, this is going to be a great story if we live through it. <laughs>
4: <laughs> so Bill, besides this like sense of, you know, this confidence and this capability to take care of yourself, did what were some of kind of your other big takeaways from all of these experiences. Well
2: fun, fun for sure. It was really fun. But also, you know, and no surprise here that some call it a spiritual feeling, but that feeling of peace and just being at one with the world and and uh, getting in you know, the what we talked about, how your brain changes after three days. I just love that feeling where all of a sudden you're just part of the flow of nature. And not, uh, and it was always very jarring to come back and see cars and go inside, you know, and all the colors look so weird. And, um, yeah, it was, uh, that, and I think that's a pretty common thing that I share with a lot of people. Yeah.
4: You don't need ever, <laughs> ever clear to alter your state of mind. Just no,
2: well, the Everclear <laughs> never made another appearance. That was a big mistake. You know, you have to learn those things when you're 15 and 16. So mm-hmm. we learned that was not a good idea and, uh, never did that again. <laughs> So,
4: growing up in Minneapolis, too, I, I grew up on a really busy street and uh, near the airport, too. So, there was a lot of uh, noise pollution, I guess, I grew up with. And living in a city, there's you know just so, so many people. Um, and I just even remember driving to the Boundary Waters and that all kind of slowly starting to to fade away I couldn't even comprehend what I was getting into or what it was going to be like until being out there but I, re- I also remember thinking like oh I there's no air like I'm not hearing airplanes and there were no airplanes and you know going 8 days in you eventually get to a point often where you don't see as many people either um when you, when you kind of go in a little bit further into the boundary waters and i remember getting to that point too where we didn't see as many people yeah i definitely think it was a sh- a shock to me yeah it was definitely a shock and yeah it's it's like one of those things when you haven't experienced it you you can't imagine what it's going to be like until you're until you're in it um and just the the awe of how how quiet it was or how clearly you could see the stars i remember all of all of those things and and how that felt for the first time and then again the opposite of all of that going going back to to minneapolis and again all of that sensory overload and noise and people i think i actually forgot about all of that and what it was like for a really long time because I didn't actually go back into the Boundary Waters for many, many years after that. Um, And so over time, I I kind of had forgotten exactly what it was like. I'm glad now that I won't ever forget what that's like. We are really excited to present a new feature that you'll only find here on the WTIP Boundary Waters podcast, and it's called Keep It Wild, a conversation with a Superior National Forest Wilderness Ranger about all things wild.
0: My name is Megan McClanahan. I work for the U.S. Forest Service as the Wilderness Operations Lead out of the Gunflint Ranger Station in Grand Marais. I'm so happy
5: that you're able to join the podcast.
0: No, yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm excited that I get to be on the debut.
5: Right now, the temperature is really weird. It's supposed to be 40 degrees today, even though it's mid-December. That often leads to some changing ice conditions out in the wilderness. What are you seeing out there right now?
0: Yeah, we're seeing and we're hearing pretty special conditions that are happening on the forest right now. We're seeing a lot of folks kind of exploring the um, ice on skates and being able to recreate in a way that we don't always get to, which is awesome because we know snow brings a lot of other activities that we all sort of anticipate and wait for and get it excited about. So yeah, lakes are freezing up and uh, people are getting out there uh, in different ways.
5: And um, what do visitors need to know if they say they wanted to grab skates and and get out on the ice?
0: Yeah, for sure. So anytime you go into the boundary waters, you have to have a permit. So right now we're in the self-issue season meaning that um, before you go into the boundary waters, you need to be filling out a self-issue permit. Any band member who have treaty reserve rights under the 1854 treaty does not need to fill out a permit um, as long as they have their tribal ID with them. If they would like to or choose to fill out a self-issue permit, that's just great for us because it helps us track numbers all year round any, any band member with their tribal ID does not need to have a permit underneath those reserved rights. And where do people find those permits? So there's a lot of different places where you can find them. We have installed permit boxes at all of our boat landings and trailheads, um, like the Border Route Trail and the Keck Trail, that feed into the boundary waters. Other places you can get them from are any of our ranger districts, so Gunflint and Grand Marais or Tofty. And then a lot of the resorts and lodges also keep a bunch on hand um, just so they can have the convenience for their uh, customers or visitors up there. Um, so, yeah, check with those places. If, if you don't know or can't figure out where to find them, you can always call the ranger stations and we can help you out. Um, but please make sure you're filling that out beforehand.
5: And are those free or?
0: Yep. So those are at no cost. And that's just to help us capture you know, use of the wilderness that, that dictates a lot of our management and our funding. And then on the back of all of those are all the rules for the boundary waters and traveling in the wilderness. Um, so go ahead and take a look just to make sure you're, you're understanding what you should be doing when you're out there.
5: So you mentioned skates, you know, are there things that really are not allowed out on the ice this time of year in the wilderness?
0: So skates are fine, but because we're, the Boundary Waters is a, is a federally designated wilderness. Um, there are just some, some pretty hard and fast rules for protecting the wilderness areas. And so at no time can you use any fat tire bikes or any mechanized wheels like that. Um, same with you know, anything that has a sail on it, which sounds a little funny for winter time, like who's going to use a sail in the winter time, but uh, you know, People come with a lot of different sports for all seasons. And so just, just know that even in the winter, no sales and then same with snowmobiles. The only place that you can have snowmobiles is in the corridor of Saginaw Lake. Otherwise nowhere else in the wilderness in the boundary waters can you have them.
5: And do you know what the conditions are in the Sag corridor right now? What are the ice conditions there in the narrows and, and North?
0: You know, I, I don't know for sure. Um, it, it, it's such a interesting time of year where, like you said, it's going to be 40 today, maybe last week or during the colder temps. It could have been better, but because we're in that early stage of winter, things are just so dynamic out there. I would highly recommend doing your research before you go out. Um, you can always call one of the outfitters up there, Um, you can for sure call us, but we, you know, we don't get to go up there every single day either. So yeah, be careful because it's, uh, it's not a for sure set route at this point.
5: Are there standard recommendations that the forest service has for people who venture out onto the ice, whether you're skating or fishing out there right now, what, what kind of tools should people have with them?
0: Great question. So same with if you're going to go camping or, or traveling out there in the summer, we really want to emphasize that you're planning ahead and preparing if, even before you get in your vehicle or put on your skates or boots. Before you even you know pass that wilderness threshold, just really do your research and uh, think about you know who's going to be your point of contact. Are are you letting somebody know that you're going out there? Are you going by yourself? Are you going with other people? You know, what's your plan for when you're out there? Um, There's a lot of videos online, on YouTube even, that you can watch about how to travel safely across ice. I would highly recommend that you check out some that have some self-rescue techniques, whether that's you rescuing yourself if you go through the ice, whether that's you helping somebody else in your your group go through the ice. Um, When we travel out there with the Forest Service, We bring throw ropes for sure with us. We bring ice picks, we bring extra warm layers. We try to gather as much information about the ice conditions that we can, but then because we know ice can be so ever changing, we're constantly monitoring. When we're out there, we're looking at different color of the ice, different, um, textures or signs that would indicate some unsafe or unpredictable site ice. And just because you see a way that somebody else has traveled before you, don't count on that as a safe route. You should be using your knowledge and your experience and and then the real time observations that that you're having. If there were an emergency, like worst case scenario, someone goes through the ice, what are we gonna do? Um, What's the plan? What's the quickest way out? Because it's so cold when you go through the ice, you are often your fastest help. So emergency services are not going to get to you as fast as you can help yourself. So really those beginning stages before you even head out, think about that worst case scenario, really be observant when you're traveling. And then with that, and you can have a bunch of fun and really get to take advantage of these super cool times that we're having right now. Like being able to ice skate on lakes <laughs> and get to these cool places. Well, thanks,
5: Megan, for joining us on Keep It Wild, this regular podcast feature on WTIP. Really appreciate hearing from you and and for sharing all of this information with our listeners.
0: Well, thanks, Stacy. I'm super excited. And if you, if anyone has any questions, feel free to give me a call. You can I'm at the Gunflint Ranger Station, so you can call the front desk and they can connect to you with me. And I hope I get to see you out there, too. It's a great time of year and super fun time for us, too.
2: Thanks to Megan for this month's edition of Keep It Wild. We'll be checking in with the U.S. Forest Service every episode as part of our mission to keep our listeners in touch with the important news and information about the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. Next up is a story from adventurer and activist Emily Ford. Podcast listeners are probably familiar with Emily, who completed a 28-day solo journey along with her dog Diggins on skis and on snowshoes from Crane Lake, on the west side of the wilderness to the Pigeon River in Grand Portage. The WTIP Boundary Waters podcast spoke with Emily about the urban to rural experience and Emily's personal connection to wilderness, garden dirt, dogs, and outdoor treks.
1: Yeah, it's, it's almost where it all began, you know, like really, it's a question people ask, like how did you start getting in the outdoors? And like, where did your love for the outdoors come from? and a, really a lot of that is that I didn't come from wealth. And so my mom and my family, would grow food to can it and save it, you know, later time. when Because you know, so we would have to buy vegetables all the time, you know. Straight out of the garden? Straight out of the garden, either freeze it or can it. My mom was a single parent. So, and she wasn't super wealthy. So the option was, you know, hire some like 12 year old to watch me or just let me come with her in in the garden, mm-hmm. you know. And same for my grandparents, you know, when they were, you know, quote unquote, babysitting me, I had to do chores with them. They were the ones who were babysitting me, but they still had chores to do around the farm. So, you know, they encouraged that also. So I just, at a very young age, breathed very clean air in the midst of plants and flowers that were, you know, much taller than I was at the time. Where was this? My mom, my mom, my sister, and I, we lived in a suburb of the Twin Cities. Yeah, we lived in Brooklyn Park. Very urban. So like get the, the urban garden. 50% of our backyard was a vegetable garden growing up. She just cut it, she's cut it in half and made it into a vegetable garden. Then the other, you know, there was like a little, like maybe 20% was a little sandbox for us to play in. And then, the you other know, the rest was grass. And my grandparents had a farm in Jacobson, Minnesota. It was a very small town in northern Minnesota. Like 200 people sprawled amongst many, many miles.
6: This is sort of this very distinct urban to rural oh, yeah. experience true. that you got kind of both. And I loved it. You know, that has nothing to do with outdoor recreation nope. at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just like living in connection to sustenance yeah. and need with the land. Yeah. Uh, and so I imagine as you grew up, you kind of found your way through the normal choices that we're all sort of asked yeah. to make in life yeah. uh, around school peers where
1: did that take you as, as a strange kid who loves the dirt i was gonna say i was so so weird i i was I, i've been thinking about this recently <laughs> about myself as like a kid mostly because with kids nowadays bullying is so everywhere like you could be bullied 24 hours a day now if you like if you have a smartphone right. and are connected to social media, right? If you so are looking at anything digital. Looking back on it, I think I was bullied a lot. I think so, because I've always been, you know, what they like used to call like tomboy, right? I didn't come out until I was twenty-five or twenty-six. But I mean, I'm like one of those kids where be like, I, you know, you could just like tell, quote unquote, you know, when I was so much younger. And I think and somebody I, could tell if it uh, wasn't you, <laughs> yeah. I think people bullied me back then, but because I was so not into what other people thought, I was just like lost in my own world of like my creative imagination. I was so into my dogs, I was so into playing in the dirt. I was like just so into these things that I didn't know I was being bullied. And now I'm like realizing what was happening. I didn't know it was happening at the time cuz I just I like didn't care. And so, like, the choices I made growing up were not always influenced by what other people thought about me, which is really cool. I don't, I don't know how that happened, really, to be honest. Magic, miracle. Yeah, really magical, right? Because, like, my upbringing has its own traumas in the midst of it, right? So I found my safe spaces, you know, in, in certain little niches, and it didn't involve other people. So, like, some of the decisions I made, you know, would be, over holiday break whatever holiday right instead of like staying home and like hanging out with the very few friends I had like I would beg my mom to let me go to my grandparents house and like go spend time with them and go spend time in the woods and I had one best friend up there she lived right across the river and like we would let our imagination we were like you remember the movie Bridge to Terabithia oh man it's with Anna Sophia Robb in it. And it's about these two kids. It's, it's, a, it's a great film. And it's like these two kids who are outcasts, they let their imaginations like run in the wild in the woods, like so much so that they would make up that the tree trunks were like troll legs. Right. And so like, that's pretty much what Anna and I did. Then I would come back to school and like everybody else would have done something else. The Other choices I made was one morning I told my mom, I'm like, mom, I'm getting up tomorrow and I'm going to hike the railroad tracks as far as I can. I was like, I couldn't even drive at this time. I don't know if I had a permit. So I was like 12, 13, 14. I don't know if I had a cell phone. I mean, maybe I had a cell phone. And she's like, okay. She just let me you know, like walk 12 miles. I woke up at like three and just started walking. You know, I'm not saying that's super safe, but here we are. I don't know. I got here in some like weird, I don't know, form of like decision-making, you know.
5: My name is Ava, and I live in Grandma Ray. My, I am nine years old.
6: Over half your life, you've been going into the Boundary Waters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's your favorite thing about being out there?
2: Um, the peace and quiet and all the things you can do. Mm-hmm. Well, I get to roast marshmallows and hot dogs and swim and go in our hammocks. Sometimes we play in them and my mom takes naps in them and sometimes we sleep in them.
6: Over the years of interviewing folks for the podcast, we've heard countless stories about how people first developed a relationship with the wilderness. Ava, who you just heard, was introduced immediately by parents who want her to have those formative experiences. Another iconic member of our paddling community started life with those same roots in wild places. You heard a little bit about this in his paddler profile, but here's the full story from Bear Paulson.
7: But when I got to college, it was like, oh my God, most people don't spend very much time outdoors, do they? Wow. Okay. Maybe, maybe that was a little bit odd that we did so much of that or normal depending on your point of view but you didn't know until then (laughs) no no exactly it just had never dawned on me and I mean I totally remember I ran into a couple on on the long solo trip I was I just finished the stretch in Manitoba and I was coming back into Ontario and so it was you know I had been out for two and a half three months and the woman was just like so what happens on a trip like this when everything's going wrong and you just don't want to be here anymore. And it just, you know, it it sucks so badly that you just want to be home. And I kind of went, well, what do you mean? I, I don't understand your question really. And and of course, you know, I did, you know, intellectually, but practically speaking, it's like, no, I want to be out here. You know, why why would I want to leave? There's, there's, I I couldn't at that point conceive of a reason that I'd want to leave. I can share one experience that way now because it's not fair to make it sound like there's never ever a time where it's just like, oh my God, this is overwhelming. And that was I did a solo trip on a, it was the Pinamuta River, which is northwest Ontario. It's north of Pickle Lake a little ways. And so I planned to go down the Pinamuta and then up the Atosquan. It rained for 12 straight days. You know, everybody's like, oh, rain for 12 straight days. And it's like, no, actually, there was about an hour of sun and about three hours of blue sky, that whole 12 days. And that river went well beyond in the flood. Whoa. And I talked with, uh, well, Bob O'Hara is a you know very famous local canoeist and yes. he'd been out a little bit further north and basically said the same thing. Holy crap, did that weather suck? <laughs> and so I got down the Pinamuta and then I was planning on going up the Itasquin. And this was one of those classic teaching moments that I hadn't had yet, which was if you go down a river, and you you lock your trip into the concept that you're going to be able to go down, and then you're going to be able to go up the next one. Well, what happens if the next one is beyond flood stage, and you it's going to be a portage for the next 50 miles? Um, you know, everywhere that there's moving water, it's going to be a bushwhack because the portages don't exist as far along those rapids as uh, as that water is filled out. And I I started to go up the Atosquan just a little bit and started to rethink and said, you know what? there's a native village downstream just a little ways further. I'm going to go check into the concept of a flight because I had no satellite communication or anything else with me. And so I started to say, you know, there's no way I'm going to make it back out on time. If I try to go up this river, I am going to be so overdue. You know, I'm going to be days and days and days overdue. And, you know, one of my cardinal rules in the days before you know, satellite communication was really available at all was I'm never late. I will never, ever, ever be late because I'd be out for, you know, three weeks or something like that. And so to to freak out mom or my sister, uh, you know, who were the two contacts in those days with me being late was just not an option. And so that one, I said, you know, let's reevaluate this. And I paddled down to the little village lands down houses, anglicized name of it and uh, inquired about flights and finally found something that was super cheap because they'd flown food in and, uh, and they could fly me and my little tiny canoe back out again as a backhaul. That is the one trip that I did abandon halfway into it. But otherwise, I can't conceive, you know, that woman's question was just as weird as when the friends in college would be like, what do you mean you're going outside again? And it's like, well, why wouldn't I want to go outside? I'm going to hike around in the woods you know, they wanted to hang out in the dorm room. And of course I did more of that my freshman and sophomore year than I ever expected to do, but it's just because of what everybody else did. And gradually it was like, I don't want to do that. I want to, I want to go out and play in the woods. <laughs> yeah. I was very fortunate to have my baseline be the woods in the wilderness as opposed to the basement. And it's not to say I didn't spend plenty of time in basements playing video games and that and other things as I was growing up. It's just to say that the woods came naturally because I was exposed to them so much.
6: Here's Michelle Kwan. She showed up on a Paddler profile series to discuss how Wendy Paulson changed her life by introducing her to the BWCA. This part of the conversation wasn't featured then, but has huge implications on how folks perceive and experience the wilderness.
8: I I always say, like, I grew up with roof over my head, food in my belly, shirt on my back, right? So Mm -hmm. just in that, I have a lot of privilege. And then I had the privilege of meeting folks who are willing to take me out. I had the privilege of having that accessibility and I know that there are people out there that don't, you know, I kind of wish when I was younger that I had that while I was younger growing up so I could have had more time with the outdoors. But, but it wasn't for my parents. And and that's the other thing is growing up with immigrant parents. I mean, my parents were like, you're going to go outside, walk around outside for days and sleep outside and cook we didn't come here for that and and, you know i live in the cedar or i grew up in the cedar riverside neighborhood and i meet a lot of somali kids who are either immigrants themselves or born and raised here but with immigrant parents and it's that same concept where they're like dude back in our home country we were sleeping on the ground we don't want to do that and so come to america they have a different idea of what the American life is, which is more of that city, that urban life or comfort of having a home to sleep in. And it's not taking your kids out camping and sleeping outside and living out in nature.
6: There could be a lot of just ignorance around why some of these types of trips are so important. Hearing Wendy say, and and I hear you saying this a little differently, you're getting more into the nuance of it, but until you see somebody who looks like you or identifies like you or resembles something about you doing the thing. It's really hard to imagine yourself doing the thing that in of itself becomes a fantastic source of inspiration and belief in what's possible. And Wendy did that for you in a certain way. And you're just expanding on that and doing that for others.
8: Yeah, yeah. I mean like you like you just said seeing somebody that looks like you in a certain space that automatically gives you that feel of belonging, right? And if you think about it, historically, outdoor spaces used to be segregated, you know, folks of color weren't allowed in national parks because it was specifically a white space. Think about generations of teaching young black and brown Folks and, and kids, that you can't be outside. It's unsafe out there, and so that becomes a generational, cultural kind of idea of like, well, I'm not, I'm not an outdoor person. And I, I spoke with a, a friend of mine who, she said, you know, I went camping for the first time. She's a black woman. I said she went, went camping for the first time, and oh my god, it was so therapeutic. And I was like, right, there's something about nature, and, and there's something out there. But until you've been out there, because I was one of those people, I was like, I'm a city kid all the way through. Mm, I don't like to be in the outdoors. But once I started going out there and once friends started to take me hiking and all that stuff, I was like, whoa, it's a whole nother world out here. It's very rewarding and and therapeutic. Open that up. Let's get people to realize that history was one thing and it taught us this way but we can unlearn that and we can really see how beautiful these places are and how open they can be and that takes you know both sides to kind Mm -hmm. of it doesn't help when I've been interviewed with like a couple of news articles about you know bringing BIPOC folks up into the wilderness and You know, you read comments are like, I don't know why we're making it about race. I think like, it's not a race thing, but, but you're making a race thing. And it's like, we're not making it a race thing. We're just saying, let's diversify the outdoors. Let's bring more folks of color. And then you being upset that we're talking about bringing folks of color up here just shows how hostile this environment can feel for us. Like I'm trying to do something good and I'm trying to spread the word. But as I read the comments, I have to feel this anger and this negativity which, and and so you know i'm hoping that i can pass along my knowledge to the next person just like wendy did for me you know like like i said she has opened my world to like places i never thought i can experience or do and i want to do that for the next generation for the next person who um who didn't know that it was out there
2: this story and so many others were shared and produced by the podcast's founding hosts, M. Baxley and Joe Fredericks, who've taken us from episode one through today. On behalf of WTIP, we want to thank both of them for sharing their voices and adventures over the years with all of us. And to all of the wilderness storytellers who've contributed to make this podcast one of the most listened to programs on WTIP, thank you very much. We hope you'll keep the stories coming our way. Here's more from Joe and Matthew.
7: Thanks to WTIP for letting us get this rolling. Thanks to Deb Benedict, who used to be the station manager at the radio station, for allowing the opportunity for Matthew and I to create the podcast. There was some, what's this podcast thing you're thinking about out of the gates?
6: Indeed, it was a weird idea for a small community radio station at the time. It just wasn't being done in any localized capacity. I want to take a moment for pause to thank the amazing friends who have trusted Joe and I with their stories. It's an honor and a privilege to have these conversations in the first place. And then to be trusted to share it with this big listening community, that's huge.
5: And here's a look back at an interview with Ely Adventures, Dave and Amy Freeman, who spent a year in the wilderness, including Christmas time.
6: Uh, can you uh, paint a picture for our listeners what it was like to have Christmas Eve, Christmas Day in the Boundary Waters?
3: You know, it was pretty special. We were uh, uh, camped on Horseshoe Island on Newfound Lake. It's on the chain of lakes from Moose Lake up to to Basswood Lake, mm-hmm. and. Um, and Moose Lake, which is was, was this entry point, was still not frozen. I mean, you know, it was partially frozen and partially open water, really not not navigable. Um, and so, yeah, we were totally cut off from the outside mm. world, and it, it was it was really neat because you know there was open water. Our campsite was the ice edge, so we really were like stuck.
9: I think uh, thanks to the many people that were looking out for us and sending in special treats with resupplies, we we did have a, a pretty good um, Christmas feast in store. Someone uh, gave us like, a really yummy trout dip kind of thing, mm. and um, I had asked for like the supplies to make sandbuckles. I, I don't know if you're familiar with those. Uh, it's similar to like a shortbread consistency and it's almond flavored and you make it by um, pressing a pretty stiff dough into these little tins um, that give it kind of a, it's almost like a a really mini pie crust, you know, like a a pie crust that's what an inch and a half in diameter or something like that. Um, And so I mixed up the dough and um, had to kind of experiment to cook it because we had our our wood stove in our tent. Um, And so I kind of alternated from like below the stove um, to get heat uh, that way um, and that's kind of a safer way to bake things so they don't burn. but then uh, to really make sure they were cooked all the way through I did like put them on top of the stove kind of briefly. The days are so short that all this time in, in the tents and the darkness and stuff was the perfect project to have. Um, but we also worked on on decorating our campsite which maybe seems a little odd. Mm, do that not at all Um, all. but like making luminaries you know out of out of ice and um, so for the the Christmas lights they were solar powered Christmas lights like short strands of that um, which we ended up decorating our tent with (laughs) and and also we made some luminaries and we had some good cold temperatures as I remember um, because they froze up really fast Mm. Um, and so then I forget how many we made. It was quite a few, maybe eight eight. or so. And we we put those around our tent. Um, So it was really pretty festive.
3: Yeah, and actually a couple days after Christmas, everything really froze over well enough that we could start traveling. And um, we moved camp just a couple miles, really enjoying the Christmas lights and the the globes. Uh, And there was this uh, really nice ash swamp about 100 yards from our campsite so we had gathered all this really nice like dead dry ash mm. and so we ended up loading this, like extra ash and the uh, luminaries and and we didn't really fully unpack up our tent we just took it apart and laid it down on top of our toboggans and, and uh so we, we could move camp and then set it back up with all the christmas lights still <laughs> on it and the luminaries so that it would be there for uh for new year's as well
4: Have you got your own wilderness tale to tell? You are invited to be part of the next episode. If you just had a great experience in the wilderness, have a big fish story to tell, or encountered something unexpected on your visit to the Boundary Waters canoe area, we would love to hear from you. Just reach out to Stacy, S-T-A-C-I, at WTIP.org.
2: The Boundary Waters podcast is supported by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and WTIP North Shore Community Radio. Our theme song is by The Bitter Spills.
4: You can travel along with the WTIP Boundary Waters podcast in every season with new episodes produced monthly. To see photos inspired by the stories from this episode and to listen to past segments, go to the podcast drop down menu at WTIP.org.